So in chapter 8, the, the first two-thirds of it, really up until verse 30, what we saw was the, the defeat or the conquer of Ai. And that conquer came after a defeat of the Israelites through the sin of Achan. They are defeated by this very small city, this very small town of Ai. It's the only military defeat that we will see in the entire book of Joshua, yet it had a profound impact and effect on the nation and on Joshua as the leader. So tonight we are at the, the end of the defeat. So Ai has been conquered. The Israelites have destroyed Ai. They've destroyed the king. They've buried the king. And now, at some time following this victory at Ai, Joshua led the people, led the, the, the nation of Israel, again, approximately 2 million people, about 30 miles north to Shechem. Now, when you're looking at a little day hike, 30 miles is not the easiest trip, let alone two million people, plus the belongings and the livestock, the kids. I think of taking my kids on a 30-mile hike, a little 30-mile walk. Hey, I don't want to do that. So there, he moves the camp about 30 miles north to Shechem, and it lies in between these two mountains. There's Mount Abel on one side and Mount Gerizim on the other. And here, the nation, they are going to obey what Moses had commanded them in his farewell speech, they're going to take kind of a holy pause, a moment from the conquering of the promised land to really set their hearts before the Lord, to really kind of be renewed in their faith by really their covenant to the Lord. Joshua is going to interrupt military activity to give Israel the opportunity to make a new or to renew their commitment to the authority that Jehovah had expressed in his law. So we're going to, this is kind of a, it's, you know, six verses. It's really the, the focus of tonight are these six verses. It's really a moment and a, a pause in, in the expansion or in the conquering of the, of the land for the people to kind of take that holy breath and kind of come before the Lord again and remember what, why they are doing what they are doing and remember why they are there. So verse 30 and 31, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel and Mount Abel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, and they sacrificed peace offerings. Now, since Abraham built an altar at Shechem in Genesis chapter 12, and Jacob lived in Shechem for a short time in Genesis 33, the area had a very strong historic tie to Israel. Remember, they're conquering the promised land. This isn't the first time that God's people were in the promised land. Back in Genesis, they were here, and then they were taken away by the Egyptians. They were in servitude for 400 years, and now the Lord has released them to come back he redeemed them. He, he allowed them and gave them freedom to come back to the promised land. So there's a lot of historical tie here. Their ancestors, Abraham, the father of the nations, had been here before. He had built an altar here. So Joshua's altar was built on Mount Abel. And we're going to learn that it's called the Mount of Cursing. And we're going to kind of see what that means in a little bit. But really, a sacrifice of blood is the only thing that can save sinners from the curse of the law. Now, what does that mean, a sacrifice of blood? It sounds kind of gruesome. So you and I, we have done wrong things. We have sinned according to the Bible, according to God's word. So how do we make a wrong right? There has to be an amends that has been given for that wrong to be made right. And biblically, we believe that that, 
the, the right that has been given is the death of Christ on the cross, on the uh, death of Christ on the cross. And his shed blood is what redeems or forgives our sin. Now, before Jesus came in the New Testament, before he came, we're way back before his time. So how do the Israelites, how do they, how do they, in a sense, are redeemed from their sin? Well, blood had to be spilt. So they set up an altar for a sacrifice. Something had to be sacrificed to bring forgiveness, to bring a cleansing of what they had done wrong. And so an altar was built on this mount of cursing because a sacrifice of blood is the only thing that can save from the curse of the law, from breaking the law. And this actually is a fulfillment of what was said in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. This is not the first time that Israel has been in this geographic region, like I already said, but it's also not the first time that these mountains have been mentioned or have been talked about in the text, in the scripture. Back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, Moses gives clear instruction, saying, when you get into the promised land, make your way to these two mounts, and you need to read the law, and you need to renew your heart. It was a commandment that was given back in Deuteronomy that now is being fulfilled. You know, flat out it says, and the Lord said, when they came to the promised land, to come to these mountains, to build an altar, to sacrifice to the Lord, and to read the law. So Joshua's not coming up with this on his own. He's being obedient to what was charged to him by Moses before he died. He's fulfilling that direction by his predecessor. And as he's leading the people, he's fulfilling the law, fulfilling the text. And there they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. We see here a very appropriate act of worship. Now, why worship? What is worship really? Worship is, is a position, it's a place where we, in a sense, lower ourselves, we humble ourselves, and we, we really glorify God. We thank Him, we praise Him. We look to Him for all that He has done in our lives and through our lives and with our lives. And remember, just before this little narrative, they defeated Ai. They defeated the enemy that really brought the only defeat against Israel, in this entire military campaign. So they're thanking the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're honoring the Lord. They're exalting the Lord for what he had done. They failed. They messed up. And the Lord gave them, in a sense, that, that other chance, another chance, another shot at doing it. And they rested in God's faithfulness, and they found victory in it. So they worshiped. God always should get the glory. Always. We can look at our lives and say it's dumb luck or it's happenstance, it's circumstance. I'm just really smart, I'm really good, I'm really talented. We can go down the list of excuses and reasons. But really, at the end of it all, God should be getting the glory in all that we do and all that we are. Because really, we call ourselves Christians, which means a little Christ, which means we have been bought by his blood, we have been saved, we have been redeemed and forgiven by his shed blood. It means then that we live a life that is not ours, but it's his. He has bought our life. So we should glorify him in all that we do, not ourselves. Even when men look at this altar that Joshua builds, they won't see any elaborate carvings. They won't see any decorations. They won't see any or anything ornate. As beautiful as it is, they don't want to draw attention to the work of man. They want it to be fully focused on God. That's why it says that he should get whole stones that no man has ever touched with an iron tool. 
Go get a rock and put it onto a pile. Don't do anything else to it so that everything that happens on that altar is purely a reflection of what God is doing and nothing of man. And again, in building the altar, Joshua completely obeyed what was written in Exodus 25 and not to apply any stone or any tool to the stones that are found in the field. No human work is to be associated with a sacrifice unless we as sinners, unless we as fallible, failing people think that we can do anything to better ourselves. God asked for a simple stone altar, not one that was designed or decorated by any man so that no one would glory in their flesh, so that no one would say, look what I did. Man, that altar, I had a hand in that. No, that's not the point in this. A humble, humble altar. It is not the beauty of man-made religion that gives the sinner forgiveness, but it's the blood of the altar. There's nothing that I can do that can bring forgiveness into my life. It's only the shed blood of something, someone, Christ in our case, that allows us to be forgiven. So it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with, with God, with Christ. And so the priests, they offered burnt offerings to the Lord as a, as a token, as a, a, a symbol of the nation's commitment to him. The peace offering, as it talks about, or a fellowship offering, it was an expression of gratitude for God and his goodness. By these sacrifices, the nation of Israel, they were assuring God of their commitment to him and their fellowship with him. So they come together again, a two million nation, two million person nation, takes a 30 mile hike to this place, and what do they do? They set up an altar. The sacrifice to the Lord, remembering him, thanking him, glorifying him for what he has done and recommitting themselves to him. But that's not all. Verses 32 and 33 say this. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and the other, in, of them in half, um, the other half of them in front of Mount Abel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel." So again, we're looking at an act of obedience. They're not coming up with this on the fly. This is an act of obedience. Now, in Joshua's day, it was customary for kings to celebrate their greatness and their victories by recording their military exploits on huge stones that were covered in plaster. So they would take these large stones and they would cover in plaster and they would inscribe on them what took place. The victory, the spoil, the battle, everything that took place, they would write it out so that other people would know what happened and who did what. But the secret to Israel's victory, it was not their leader. It was not their army. It was their obedience to the law, to the rule of God. In later years in the book of Judges, we'll see that whenever Israel turned away from God's law, they got into trouble and they had to be disciplined. In this act of obedience, we see Joshua as a man of the book, a man of the word, a man of, of the text of the scriptures, obeying what was actually commanded of him in Joshua 1.8, where it said that the word should not depart your mouth, but you should meditate on, meditate on it day and night. So Joshua's commanded, you should always be about the word of God. 
think that's a great commandment for all of us. We should always be about the word of God, that we should meditate on it, think about it, pray on it day and night. We also see Israel here as a people of of the scripture, of the text, ordering their lives after God's word. So they come together, they have this altar, they have the sacrifice, but then Joshua on these stones start inscribing what the law of God is, in a sense, how they should be living. The law was written on stone, and that was an external, that was an external thing. It was not internal. It could instruct the people, but it could never change the people. Today, we, we believers, we Christians, we have the word of God that, are, that is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. It has become internalized. Yeah, we have the physical text in front of us. But as we study it, as we we pour over it, as we meditate on it, it doesn't just become a book, a textbook, it becomes part of us. And the very written word of God becomes part of who we are by the Holy Spirit writing it on our hearts and it becomes part of the fabric of our character. Becomes who we are, not just what we do. Paul actually made it very clear in the epistle to the, Gala- to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3 that while the law can convict someone, it can bring them to Christ, it can never convert someone from sinner to saint and make them like Christ. So this has the amazing ability to convict me, to tell me what I'm, to show me what I'm doing wrong, to show me the error of my ways. It has the ability to bring me to Christ and say, Lord, I've messed up. I need your help. But really, it is only through Christ that our hearts can be changed. This altar, this stack of stones, these stones written, this pile of stones with the law written on it, this is the fourth public monument of stones that has been erected in the promised land. The first one was at Gilgal, commemorating Israel's passage across the Jordan River. So they cross over the Jordan River. Remember back in, in chapter 3, they do, a, they do stones on, in the promised land. They also do the 12 stones in the middle of the river as a remembrance of, look how far, look what the Lord has done. Look at his faithfulness that he's brought us here. The second was in the Valley of Achor. And it was a monument to Achan's sin and God's judgment. Something that Israel did not want to quickly forget what happens when they step out ahead of God without praying, without seeking him thinking that they can do it on their own. The third was at the entrance to Ai. Earlier in chapter 8, we read that at the entrance of Ai, they erected a pile of stones, a monument of stones, reminding them of God's faithfulness to help his people. The stones in the Valley of Achor was a reminder of their failure. The stones in the, at the beginning at the gates of Ai were a remembrance or a reminder of God's faithfulness and his completion. And these stones here at Mount Abel reminded Israel that their success, their victory, their ability to do anything lay only in their obedience to God's word. Nothing else. It was to remind them, that's right. If we want to find victory in this promised land, we have to do what the word says. We have to do what God says. I think for us, we have the text in front of us. We have more than, we have more than any of the, the Bible writers had. We have it all, the full counsel of God. And it's in front of us not only as a reminder, but as a challenge to live right. We're going to understand a little bit more as we read, as, you know, they read. And we're going to understand that it's full of blessing and cursing. There's good things. And there's, if you don't do, then there's bad things. So verses 34 and 35. 
Afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Now let me stop real quick. The book of the law, what is that? Well, it depends on how exactly you want to define it, but it's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, do I think that they sat there and they read all the words of the law? Maybe, says it in the text. But what I think they really were focusing on are what they are supposed to do and what they weren't supposed to do. The blessings and the cursings. Do this and don't do this. I think when Joshua inscribed the law on the, the stones, he was describing the essence of the law. And that could be found in Deuteronomy 1 and 4 and 6 and 7. The essence of what the point of the law is. A reflection of the people's heart in obedience to God and his heart. So they, they read the blessings and the cursings. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, the women, the little ones, and the strangers who are living among them. So here, the tribes, they were actually assigned their places in front of the two mounts. And again, this is according to Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, they were at Mount Abel, the Mount of Cursing. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and that would be Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin, they were at, at Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. Now the tribes that were at Mount Gerizim, they were the ones that were found, they were the tribes that were founded by men who had either Leah or Rachel for their mother. Whereas the tribes at Mount Abel, they were the descendants from either Zilpah or Bilhah, the handmaidens of Leah and Rachel. The only exceptions were Reuben and Zebulun. They belonged to Leah, but yet they were on the other side of the mounts. Reuben had forfeited his, his status as the firstborn because he had sinned against his father. We won't go, go into that now. You can go back into Genesis and you can read about that. And in the valley between these two mountains stood the priests and the Levites with the ark, surrounded by the elders, the officers, and the judges of the nation. So picture it. You have these two mounts. You have these two mountain slopes that down in the middle in the valley. That's where the Ark of the Covenant, the priests, the judges, the officers, basically the leadership is down in the middle and you have the people, two million people, on the hillside. The people, they were all facing the Ark. The Ark, as we know, it represents the presence of the Lord among his people. If the Ark was there, the Lord was there. It is the representation of his presence that he is with them. And when Joshua and the Levites read the blessings of the Lord one by one, the tribes at Mount Gerizim responded with a loud, Amen! Or, not just Amen, it more so means, so be it. It's a cry of agreement. It's a cry of saying, I agree with what you're saying, and I back it, I support it. And when they read the curses, the tribes at Mount Abel, they would respond with their Amen after each curse was read. God had given the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. Remember the story of the Ten Commandments. And the people, they had accepted it and they promised to obey it. Moses then repeated and explained the law on the plains of Moab at the border of Canaan. He took time to explain the law once again before they entered into the land of promise. 
And he applied that law to their lives in the promised land and admonished them, challenged them, commanded them to obey it. And according to Deuteronomy, the altar was built on the mountain of cursing at Mount Abel. We need the covering sacrifice. We need that point of forgiveness exactly at the point where our sin and failures are revealed. As soon as the word, the law, reveals our shortcomings, it's immediately where we need that sacrificial forgiveness. When God, when he pronounces his curse over our sin, we immediately need his forgiveness. So that's why the altar was placed on the Mount of Cursing. So that the blood that would be shed on that altar would be shed over the cursing, over the sin, over the shortcomings of the nation. And Joshua now is reaffirming the law in the land of promise. How amazing is that? Back in, in, at Mount Sinai, the law is given. They have their, their years of the wilderness wanderings with this law, this, this, these instructions they're supposed to be living by. In the plains of Moab, Moses reminds them all of what's going on. They know the land of promise. Canaan is a real thing. Now they're there. They're here in the land of promise. And what do they do? They take time now. Yeah, we've, we've had a, a few stories. We've had Jericho. We've had Ai and Achan. We've had the fall of Ai. We've had a few different stories happening. But they take this moment. Okay, we're in the promised land. We're settled. We're here. We've made enough headway that we know that we can sustain ourselves here. Let's take a moment now and let's remember the word of the Lord. Let's remember why we're doing what we're doing. And since the area between the two mountains, they, they form that natural amphitheater, everybody could hear the words of the law clearly and they can respond understanding what was being said. They're not just blindly shouting out, amen, and, and agreeing with what's going on. They can intelligibly hear what's happening and what's being said. And by shouting amen to the statements that were read, the people, they admitted that they understood the law with both its blessing and its cursing. And that they accepted the responsibility to obey it. It's built in accountability. If I'm standing with my, my countrymen on either side of me, and I'm the only one that's not agreeing with what's going on, it's going to be noticed. It's not forced, it's not peer pressure accountability, but it's understanding that we're in this together. And that if my neighbor, if my brother or my sister, if they don't do it, I'll be affected. If I don't do it, they'll be affected. It's the same thing in the church today. We're not individuals that sit in here individualistically listening to the word of God, thinking that my life has no impact and effect on everyone else around me. As a body of believers, as a body of Christ, my life has an impact on those around me, and those around me have an impact on my life. And here, the, the nation together, harmoniously, are saying, we're hearing, we understand what's going on, and we accept it. Not only do we accept what's being said, but we accept the responsibility to live it out. And like the text said, it includes women, it included children, it included the mixed multitude, the strangers, the, the people that had joined into the camp of Israel. If they wanted to share in Israel's conquest and victories, they had to submit to the law of the God of Israel. Today, 
God's people, you and I, us, we actually stand in the valley of two mountains as well. We have, on one hand, Mount Calvary, where Jesus died for our sins, the the mount on which he was crucified. And on the other side, we have Mount Olive, where biblically we read that that is where he is going to return for us in power and glory one day. You read about his, his, his second coming, and he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. And we're in this kind of valley area. We're in this, this era between these two mounts, between these two mountains. We're in the church age. We know the Messiah has come. The Savior, Jesus Christ, has come and has died for us, opening the door of forgiveness and eternal life with him forever. But yet he hasn't come back for us, so we're kind of in this valley in between these two mounts. And what I love about that picture is the figure on both is Christ himself. This, the fulfillment of the law on both sides. Today, you and I, we are not living under the curse of the law because Jesus, he bore that curse. He bore the penalty of the law on himself when he hung on a tree, when he was crucified on the cross. He carried the weight of the sin of the world, of your sins that you have committed, that you are committing, and that you will commit He loved you enough, he loved me enough to die for that. And so he bore the weight of all the shortcomings and failures of this world so that we could have eternal life with him. And in Christ, you and I, believers, Christians, those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing because of his grace, because of what he has done. Nothing because of me, nothing because of you. We have done nothing. He has done it all. And because of his grace, we receive all the blessing. Now, just because Christians are not under the law, but we are under grace, it doesn't mean that we can live any way that we want, that we can ignore what the word says, that we can deny what it says. We aren't saved by keeping the law. We aren't saved by by checking off all the boxes of this and doing exactly what this says. That's not what keeps us saved. Nor are we sanctified, nor are we set apart from the things of this world by trying to meet the demands of the law. I'm not who I am by, by making this my taskmaster, by making the text my master and me its slave. But... The righteousness or the right positioning of the law is fulfilled in us as we walk after the Lord by his Holy Spirit. Now again, I go back to the example of what does it mean to live a holy life? It means you are closer to God when you go to bed than when you woke up. That if you want to be holy before the Lord, that means tonight before your head hits the pillow, you'll be closer to him than when you woke up this morning. Now, there's no quantifying mark of how much. It could be you know, half a baby step. I got a three-year-old. It could be one of his, his steps. I got a 12-year-old. It could be one of her leaps. doesn't matter how much closer. It matters that every day you are intentionally and actively trying to get closer to the Lord in your life. If we put ourselves under the law, if we put ourselves in the place where we have to just do what is right all the time and it becomes a taskmaster, we forfeit the enjoyment of the blessing of grace. If, however, we walk in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us and convicts us and helps us do what's right, 
We experience his life-changing power and live as God has asked us to. So what is this really kind of, as we you know, look at the end of chapter 8 before we kind of do a little intro for 9, what is it really showing us? It's telling us that we have to rest in him. We have to rest in what he has done. We have to find peace in what he has already done for us. We have to find peace in what he's doing with us right now. And we have to rest and find a peace in what he's going to do with us. So, again, we're not even going to touch verse 1 of chapter 9. I have no idea how much space you have between verse 35 of chapter 8 and verse 1 of chapter 9 in your Bible. I got like a tiny bit, but we're going to camp out there for a little bit now. And that little, the, the, that little gap is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And before we go anywhere near chapter 9, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about it, but also do a little survey back. Chapter 9 is an interesting chapter. The chapter really is a big picture of compromise. And as we've been going through the book of Joshua, it's, the book has kind of given us pictures. It's kind of given us little narratives and little vignettes of the struggles and the victories of Christians and their lives and their walks with the Lord. Chapters 3 and 4, we see that they were battles, that they were pictures of devotion are we really willing to follow the Lord in his presence? The Israelites, they had to follow the ark into the, to the Jordan River. There was no inclination as to what was going to happen, just the promise of God's word and the promise of going and being obedient. That was something that they had never done before. A picture of some of the problems that we might encounter regarding devotion. What does it mean for my life to be devoted, to be given over to the Lord? Well, it, it means that I might have to take some steps that I've never taken before. It means I might have to do things that I'm uncomfortable doing. So it's, it's a battle of devotion, and chapters 3 and 4 kind of show us that. Chapter 5, it's a picture of consecration and communion. What's consecration? It's being made sacred or holy or, being, or setting ourselves aside. What's communion? It's an intimate sharing of thoughts and feelings and emotions, really in communion with the Lord, having that fellowship, that discussion, that intimate sharing with Him. These two are completely necessary for, for us to walk the way that we should after the Lord. Sometimes we feel that we do not have time to slow down and to do those things. I'm sure Israel felt very vulnerable as they circumcised themselves and as they stayed there for Passover in the presence of their enemy. But that is the exact place that we are called to consecrate ourselves in the presence of our enemy. Because at that point, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the Lord. I can stare my enemy in the face and I can say, all right, Lord, I see the enemy there, but I know you're stronger. I know you're more powerful. I know you're more capable. So I'm going to trust you and I'm going to stay in this place of discomfort, of vulnerability. I'm not going to run away because I think it's hard. It might be uncomfortable, but I'm not going to run away because I trust you more. And if you brought me to this place, I'm going to trust that you're going to keep me in this place. Chapter 6, it's a picture of our struggles of faith and obedience. I can say I struggle with those often, more than I want at times. The struggle as they walk around the walls of Jericho. 
The men, they had their swords drawn out. They had their spears in hand, but they were not allowed to use any human energy for that victory. They had to comply in faith and obedience to do the things that God had told them to do. They weren't allowed to use their muscles. They weren't allowed to use their physical muscles. They had to exercise their spiritual muscle and trust the Lord. They had to grow in their faith. They had to grow in their obedience. Talked about this a couple weeks ago in our small group about faith and obedience. That if the Lord is calling us to do something, we are to be, you know, obedience has to be immediate. If obedience is not immediate, it is no longer obedience, but it is convenience. And we are not called to be a convenient Christian. We are called to be an obedient Christian. And even if what the Lord is asking us to do might be a week or a month out, there should still be an immediacy to the change of our heart and our mind towards whatever that is. But there should be an immediacy to the obedience that the Lord asks of us. So often in our lives, God will ask us to do something and it doesn't seem to make any logical sense. It doesn't seem like things will work out. But that's why he is the Lord and we are not. Amen to that. I remember it was August of 2014. Actually, it was August 14th of 2014. I was leading a missions trip, high school mission trip over to Hungary. And we are in a small village working at a Bible college. And, and I was there meeting with the pastors and the leadership. And, and I was given an opportunity to struggle with faith and obedience. And as we talked and as we discussed, an opportunity, a, a, a question was asked of me. Would we pray about and would we consider joining the staff of the school and, and move to Hungary? Now, on one hand, there was immediate excitement. Like, oh my gosh, this is happening. This is something that my wife and I, that we had wanted to do for quite some time. Join this staff and be part of this ministry and disciple and raise up these young men and women. Pour into their lives so that they would go out in the power of the Lord and do amazing things for him. We wanted to do that. But then reality hit. We had three kids. We had a ministry we were a part of. We had friends. We had family. At that point in August, my youngest was four months old. So looking at it, was, was there a struggle to an extent? Yeah. It meant uprooting my children from their friends, from their grandparents and their family, moving them a few thousand miles away to a place they've never really experienced and asking them to live a life that I'm forcing on to them and asking that the Lord would bless them and bless us for that. And he did, but it was a struggle for a little bit. And when we got there and we got established, it was, you know, the, the beginning years wasn't the easiest. It wasn't the easiest for me because I'm sitting here thinking, my, you know, provision for my family. I don't have a job anymore. I'm a missionary. What does that mean? That means I have to rely on the donations and the support and the giving of churches and individuals to take care of my family. I was a young man with a, a family of five, and I had to rely on other people to take care of us. And who I am as an individual, that was really challenging. I felt like a charity case for a long time until really I understood and I realized, nope, this is all part of faith and obedience. If this is the life that the Lord had called us to, he is going to provide exactly the amount that we needed for that life. 
Chapter 7 is a picture of sin and self-confidence and prayerlessness. They go up to Ai without seeking God and being self-confident, they take the victory at Jericho, they apply it to themselves, and they have to learn that their dependency is truly on the Lord. They have to learn that the effect, the, the effect that sin can have on the entire camp. Chapter 8, finished it last time, or he did it last time, finished it tonight. It's a challenge or it's a picture of faith after failure. Sometimes when we fail, we feel like we can never get back up again. That God's never going to give us another chance, another opportunity. But in their obedience, Israel, through faith, they get up. And God gives them a great victory. And that's going to bring us to chapter 9. And again, it's a picture of compromise. It is one of the battles that as God's children, all of us, every single one of us, struggle with to some degree or another. Adam and Eve compromised. They had the clear word of God given to them by the God of the word, and they compromised. There was the setting aside of the word of God as Satan made his suggestions. Abraham compromised. God's not afraid to put that before us. If you haven't been listening in on Sundays, I encourage you, Pastor Jim's been doing a, a series on the life of Abraham, venturing into the unknown. And it's looking at this man's life, good, bad, and ugly. If you've been following along, great. If not, go onto our website. Go back and start listening to those messages. And you look at this man and his compromising and his victories and his faithfulness and his obedience and disobedience. And it's an amazing story that's very encouraging. Jacob certainly compromised. Samson, with so much potential and acting as a judge in Israel for 40 years, experienced such a pitiful failure because of compromise. David, Israel's greatest king, compromised in his life. And we're told similar things in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul is writing these things to the Corinthians, and if you've ever done any study into the Corinthian church, you will see that they had compromise happening basically on every level. They were using the gifts out of order. They were divided, some of them saying that they were of Paul and others that they were of, of Apollos. They were suing one another in the civil courts. They were getting drunk at the communion table. They were tolerating fornication in their sin. And there was compromise, and Paul is challenging them. Now, it's not a new problem amongst God's people. We are here in this world living under different standards. As we come to Christ, as we come to God and his word, we find this process of growth and sanctification. We are not perfect right away. We are being made perfect by Christ. God is the one that is raising us up. The scriptures in Philippians says that he has begun a good work in us and he will be faithful to complete it. And as we spend more and more time with God and living our lives for him, 
we should see that his influence is greater than the world's. But there's a problem. The world is far more tangible than God. The world is specifically set up around our sensory experiences. There is so much more out there that appeals to what we can feel and taste and touch and see, where our Heavenly Father is actually more powerful than the world, but we have to live for Him in faith. He has given us His Word, but many times His Word does not seem logical. There are times that we know what his word is telling us and we choose to do the other thing, the opposite. Sometimes we look at the other thing and we think, that's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a sin. It's a little white lie. Again, I think I've talked about this before, a sin spectrum. We're okay with certain sins and then we're really not okay with other sins where when God looks at it all, it's the same. Sin is sin. In the Old Testament, sexual sin was a capital crime. Now it's just cheating on someone. When I think of cheating, I think of a, of, a, of a kid in a test in school. But now it's likened to sexual sin? Or the times that we can justify getting paid under the table? Well, guess what? Jesus can see through that table. We put everything into these little categories and onto the spectrum, and we think that it's okay. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The commentator G. Kemble Morgan, he actually translated it this way. He says this, Those are the sins that are in good standing. They are the ones that are easily allowed to exist in our sanctified lives. I hate that sentence. <laughs> They're the sins that are allowed to exist in our life. I'm, that means I'm choosing to allow them to be there. The sins that so easily ensnare us, that means that we're prone to them. We have to lay those aside. There's a compromise that can come at us full force. Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5.8, says that, that the enemy, that Satan's out there like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom, may, whom he may devour. We're told in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that he that Satan, he's the serpent of old. He is much more subtle. He is much more devious and crafty. And then again in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, sometimes he comes disguised as the angel of light. Compromise can come at you in many different ways. Now this chapter, when we get to it, it's not about the blatant rebellion that was in Achan's life, but it's more so about those things that come to us and they look completely innocent. That we are willing to tolerate them without giving them much thought or seeking the Lord. And sometimes the most innocent action without seeking the Lord is what will bring us down. We allow them to get into our lives and without thinking how they might infect us. Joshua and the nation of Israel, they took time. They set themselves aside for a moment, and they remembered. They, they renewed their faith. They renewed their covenant and their commitment to the Lord. And they did that because, well, they didn't know what was going to go on, but the next chapter, they were going to be faced with compromise. So how do we avoid these areas and these situations of compromise from entering into our lives and infecting us? Well, faith. What is faith? 
Now, we know the biblical answer that it's the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. What does that really mean? What does it mean? What is authentic faith? I'm gonna, I want to read the words. There's a, a group that I, I truly enjoy listening to, and they, they have this song called Devotion, or it's actually just this, uh, it's, it's a work called Devotion, and it talks about faith. And so I just want to read what it is, and I'm going to end with a quote, and then we're going to get into some worship. But I, just, I really want you to listen to this, because for me, this really answers what is faith, and what do I do to grow my faith? Because it's through faith in the Lord that we can really avoid compromise in our life. So, what is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spiritually attached to it, spirituality attached to it, a holy hoping for the best. Authentic faith is a confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stabbing in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. This is what faith is, my friends, positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God. It is taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. Faith is is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that animates, that moves us to persevere in our obedience to him. Do you want to become a more consistently obedient, a steadfast, or a steadily persevering Christian, a stronger Christian, a more courageous Christian? Then you need to strengthen your faith. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ in all of his promises. Is your faith weak? It is only to the fact that you do not know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or even more, more so, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly, increasingly stronger. So how does that happen? How do we grow our faith? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God. The same powerful word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same word that can bring you to life and furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. So what is faith? How do we build our faith? The answer is here. It's by spending time immersing ourselves in the word of God. George Mueller said this, the less we read the word of God, the less we desire to read it. And the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. 
I love and I hate that at the same time. I hate the reality of the, of the truth that it speaks. I think we can all understand and we can all agree that the less we spend time reading, the less we desire to read. Why are we surprised when compromise comes into our life when we are not receiving life from the Word of God? We're spiritualizing our own flesh, our own failings, our own faults. And we're expecting that we won't compromise in our walk with the Lord. Same thing with prayer. Sometimes prayer can feel like an arduous task. Or sometimes prayer just feels like the check mark on the day. I did it, I'm good. It's discussion. It's, it's reasoning. It's, it's conversation with your Heavenly Father, with your Savior. That's prayer. It's talking to the Creator of the universe about the things that weigh in your heart. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's about going to Him and saying, Dad, I need help. Dad, I love you. Father, I want some encouragement. I want some direction. I need your wisdom. I need your counsel. I need your understanding. But the less we spend time in his word and the less time we spend conversing with him, the less we will desire to do it. We need to be renewing our faith so that we can battle compromise. Let's pray.